All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to the podcast my friend, incredible human being, and one of the most important voices on sexuality on the planet, in my opinion, Layla Martin. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. How is uh, how is beautiful Venice, California right now? Oh my gosh, spring hit. It's so incredible. I got like, literally I already have like 100 cactuses and I went out and just got like 100 more. So there's like overflowing abundance of cactuses, sunshine and hummingbirds right now. Layla has one of the most beautiful houses in the world because she does these incredible video tutorials uh, on her YouTube channel, which is incredible. We'll link it in the show notes. So every little nook of her house looks like this beautiful kind of set for a, a shoot, which is incredible. I always love being out there. But uh, yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show, Layla. You are a fountain of knowledge in all things sexuality, tantra. And uh, today, you know, what we focus on on the show is really helping some of the smartest people on the planet to distill a singular idea of one thing that they feel is important, insightful, that they wish more people could integrate into their lives. And so with all the various things that you have going on, uh, what's the big idea? What's one thing that you really want to focus on that you wish more people could make a part of their lives? So there's like a million things. And today we're going to discuss um, what men don't understand about their sexuality. Like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. What are those pieces that we think we're so certain of, or that men think they're so certain of, even women think they're so certain of around men's sexuality that absolutely are not. And so tell me why this is something that you feel is important. So we have a very scientific, basic kind of collective uh, story about men's sexual experience. And most men that I talk to and work with have a similar experience with some exceptions of their own sexuality, which is men are extremely visual. They get very turned on. If they're touched the right way, they're having sex the right way. They build up their level of turn on and excitement until climax. They ejaculate with climax and that's it. And there's this cultural narrative uh, that really leads men to believe that my sexuality is simplistic like that. It works like clockwork. There are certain things that I obviously desire and, you know, case closed. Now, there are some men whose sexuality does not neatly fit into that box. So they already question that reality, but they often question their experience in comparison to that narrative. And then there are other men who just, they, their sexuality fits enough into that or can fit enough into that, but they never question it. And the reason that questioning is important, well, first of all, just because who wants to live in a box that society gave you without ever peeking outside of it or experiencing yourself outside of, you know, social given limitations, but also because that limiting narrative of men's sexuality is vastly creating problems in sexuality. Everything from just dissatisfaction for, you know, female lovers, if they're bisexual or heterosexual, all the way to huge sexual shadows uh, inside of men. And then 
that in my experience, when you fully open to what's possible sexually, the level of pleasure, of intimacy, of expansion, of consciousness shift, of what your body's capable of, it's like you wake up to the true nature of sexuality. And I, you know, I personally don't want a single man who would love to have that experience to miss it before he dies. I love that. So you, you just said something towards the end there, which I'm, I'm curious to dig into a little more, which is you said the true nature of sexuality, which is for someone who is not even familiar with what the term sexuality, like I have an immediate reaction to that of like, okay, I, I understand that is kind of like my, my desires and my urges, but what does that mean when you say the true nature of sexuality? And what do you think that that is? Absolutely. So we tend to think of sex as the physical act. And kind of as you're alluding to, sexuality is everything that, yes, includes the physical act of sex and your desires, your impulses, the feeling of turn on in your body, how you get turned on, your fantasy. It's basically the whole mental, emotional, physiological experience of sex that's way bigger than just the action itself. Like the difference between going to the gym and the concept of health sort of the difference mm. between sex and sexuality, right? Health is so much bigger and broader than going to the gym and how you approach your health vastly impacts what happens when you go to the gym. So it's a very similar thing of understanding sex in a much broader holistic sense. And then that's the concept of sexuality. And so when did this first become interesting to you, especially in the realm of we're, we're talking kind of about male sexuality today. So when did it become an area of interest for you in your life where this became something that you felt was important and worthy of your exploration? Yes. So, and then really quick, because there was a really uh, amazing question you asked that I didn't answer, which was the, what is actually true the nature, nature of sexuality. sexuality. Yes. So I'll answer that and then I'll answer how I got into this. So the true nature of sexuality, what I would describe it as is like, I'll use a similar metaphor to food. Like if people think that everything you ingest the only purpose is to give you energy, right? Like food or anything you could put in your mouth equals fuel. And some people have this very basic understanding of what food is. Like I eat, so I have energy in life, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's a more nuanced experience of I could eat healthy, I could eat organic, I could eat foods that are good for my particular blood type or my particular body. And then all of a sudden, what I eat isn't just about how much energy I experience during the day or that I have fuel in my body, but it's actually about how I feel about and understand and experience emotions, uh, my body itself, health and wellness, right? And then you can take it to the next level, which is everything I ingest isn't necessarily food, I could drink ayahuasca or I could take LSD. So everything I put in my mouth actually isn't so simple. There's this whole other dimension of potentially expanding my consciousness or changing the way that I experience life itself. And sex and sexuality in my experience are exactly the same, that you have the most basic level of sex, which is I need to get off or I need to ejaculate or maybe even procreate, make a child, right? That's the same as food equals fuel. Then there's this bigger experience of sex and sexuality, which is, wow, you know, if I look my lover in the eyes or if I have, uh, you know, sex that lasts for 
half an hour instead of seven minutes, I feel different in my body. I feel differently towards the person I just had sex with. I feel differently uh, in my emotional realm. Like those of us who have ever had really powerful sex know that you end up feeling differently uh, in your emotions, in your mind, in your body than you do if you just fuck, right? Um, Like for, you know, five minutes with someone that you don't really care about. Then on top of that, there's the taking LSD or ayahuasca version of sexuality, which is when you start using your breath, your med- like meditative focus, things like working with energy or the emotions of sexuality, sexuality can actually induce the same states of consciousness and awareness that LSD or ayahuasca or like, you know, magic mushrooms can, but naturally it's with your own endogenous DMT, your own uh, pharmacological chemicals inside of your brain and body. And this to me is so fascinating because culture right now is so interested in these alternative states of consciousness and sex is one of the most powerful portals to those states of consciousness if you know how to access it within your own brain and body. And so, but tell me a little more about what is so specific about the act of, of sex, of sexuality to trigger those alternative states of being, like what is happening there that makes those states available versus, you know, something like maybe like, I guess working out or something, you can actually get to those states, but what's specifically about sexuality that opens up those, those alternative realms. So there's a couple different pieces uh, that I would guess just based on how this happens in general. So when you look at ecstatic or altered states of consciousness, usually bodily movement is one piece of it, usually getting into an ecstatic state. So basically ecstasis is the Greek word for being out of your everyday state of consciousness. There's something about sexual desire, sexual turn on, and this elevated place that you go to when you're really, really, really turned on that acts as an added fuel. So you could dance your state and you dance yourself into that state of consciousness like you're talking about. You could do it at the gym if you really, really wanted to, but turn on desire and specifically, and this is me guessing because they haven't fully studied this yet, but they've studied other things like this, like breath work, like bodily movements, like yoga, that when you add something like desire and turn on, it's basically like adding fuel to that fire of what your body and mind can already do. I love that. One of the things I've learned about even flow states as well is the idea of like doing things that are of an autotelic nature of like basically doing things that you really want to be doing and that factor of allowing yourself to be completely absorbed into the state which is one of the beautiful things I think about your work is providing a framework for people to understand their their desires and their sexuality so that they can understand, like, I'm not just necessarily like acting out subconscious urges, but I'm aware of what I want and what I want to be doing so that I am just more capable of being absorbed by the act itself as opposed to being like stuck in our head and doubt or other things that might emerge. Um so beautiful. So I'm I'm curious now, and, and we're definitely going to circle back, and I want to talk a little more about why people stop short, why people don't explore their sexuality, which you know I certainly experienced um, kind of in my early 20s and even up through you know my 30s of of having difficulty navigating sexuality, of even knowing how to broach that conversation. But one thing I'm I'm curious to learn about is like when did this become an area of focus for you? When did this become clear that this was something that not only you were interested in and driven to explore, but something that was important for the world. Yeah. So I had, um, 
uh, like the strange inclinations. I grew up in the suburbs of Colorado, um, you know, very business oriented family. Nobody did anything like this in my family or in my childhood. And I just decided that I wanted to go to that Indian Nepal when I was 14. I got on a trip in the back of the New York Times. And I told my parents, I was like, I, you need to send me here. And luckily, I'm so grateful. I had the privilege of parents who were like, look, if you get straight A's, we will send you to Asia fine. And so I got sent to Asia um, when I was 15 with a bunch of other high schoolers to whatever 20 somethings. And I got uh, to really experience meditation. We went to different monasteries. It was so amazing, so fascinating. And I really, you know, got introduced to a different way of, of relating to body and mind. And this was before, uh, you know, consciousness and yoga and all of that was a big cultural topic. And then I went to Stanford university when I was 17 and I was already starting to become interested in sexuality. Now I experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse from my biological father. And so I already, I, I had a really broken relationship to sexuality. I couldn't go into Victoria's secret. It freaked me out too bad. I couldn't have sex unless I was, you know, uh, on drugs or alcohol. Like I was really, uh, like blocked and, and broken around my sexuality. And somehow I still had this very deep desire to understand it fully. And even in some ways to understand the human condition fully. And I don't know how I had that so young, but I did. So I focused on sexuality at Stanford, uh, started buying one way tickets to Asia, going back to Asia, learning, you know, tantric meditations. When I was 18, I realized like Tantra is, I really want to pursue that path in life. And Tantra is about so much more than sexuality. So I kind of had this, this orientation towards, I want to know as much as possible about expanded states of spirituality, about an inclusive mystical path, which is what Tantra is, meaning I can get to altered states of consciousness, spiritual states of connection through life itself, through sex, through food, through dance. I don't have to do it through denying life. And then also through academia and learning a lot in like, you know, on PowerPoint slides about like STDs and pregnancy and all of that. So I just had that curiosity from very, very young and just kept pursuing it over and over again. And so when you were experiencing, you know, some of kind of like your, I don't want to use the word um, dysfunctional, but you, you talk about like not being able to go into Victoria's Secret, you know, having challenge connecting with your partners growing up. So when you started to pursue this, was it through the lens of in a way of kind of trying to solve your own issues? Or was it something that were you less aware of that and just curious about these these things growing up? What what was driving you to dig in? Yeah. It's hard to untangle it because I knew, like I knew that something was quote unquote wrong with me, even though now I just look at you were just coping with trauma the best way you could. Like I couldn't take a shower without my bathing suit on when I was like 12, 13 years old, because I just didn't want to look at my body, mm-hmm. but I hadn't consciously tied all of my struggles to being sexually abused. They were, it was still kind of separate forgotten, packed away, like deep in my brain and body. So I knew that I wasn't kind of functioning the way that maybe quote unquote, you would think you should. 
And also, I, you know, people don't talk about these things. So I didn't have a lot to compare it to. Like, I didn't actually think I was that messed up. I just kind of felt like everyone had issues around sexuality. So there was kind of this core curiosity that, yes, was connected to the fact that I felt like I was really struggling. But it wasn't actually until about five years after I started doing tantric practices, meditation, and yoga that I was like, oh, I really need to go see, you know, sexual abuse therapist, I really need to start working on directly on my sexual trauma. So that actually came later. Okay, cool. So I have two questions from this. And the first one is, is I just want to unpack the word Tantra as we're using it. And I feel like it's going to come back up. So if you were to help someone understand what Tantra is, how would you do that? Tantra is one of, to me, the most philosophically and mystically developed spiritual traditions uh, in the whole world. So it has roots in India and it spread to Tibet, Nepal, China, Japan, and influenced all Asian religions. It had its peak from 580 to 1580. And the biggest piece, the reason that I've been so drawn to it is it's practical in nature, like a lot of Asian religions actually. So it doesn't say you have to believe this uh, to be you know, a part of this if you do this, you will realize. And what's so cool about Tantra is it birthed modern Hatha yoga. So it was more than just meditation. It was movement. It was breath work. And it was meditation combined. It also used mantra, the science of sound, and uh, deity worship, bhakti, the like states of compassion and love. So it was basically a very inclusive path to spiritual awakening. Now, a lot of traditions, um, certain aspects of Buddhism, certain aspects of Hinduism, definitely Judeo-Christian uh, traditions basically say to have div- like you know God or goddess, whatever you want to call it, to have divinity in your life, you have to give up. You have to give up sex. You have to give up pleasure. You have to give up money. You have to give up success in a lot of ways. You have to give up something uh, or many, many things in order to have that connection. And the the kind of core premise of Tantra is at some points you might give those things up as, you know, to experiment with, ha- with what happens without them. But the teaching is that you can have all those things and you can have your connection to the divine. And you can learn about the divine through those things. So through sex, through food, through dance, through movement, you can discover Uh, the goddess in absolutely everything. And so for me, even though it's a very, you know, ancient religion or has roots, it has roots in, you know, Asian traditions that are so amazing and so complex and so beautiful. It also has this teaching that I feel is so relevant for so many of us in the modern era, which is we're hungering for that deeper spiritual connection. But, you know, it sounds crazy to have to give up all of the things that are so beautiful about life in order to get there. And so where does the kind of mischaracterization of Tantra being purely about sex come from? So I think it comes from two different realms. One is that it's one of the only traditions, religious traditions that exist that I know of that fully embraced sexuality. 
So there are some, you know, classical tantric texts that worship, you know, the yoni, the vulva of the goddess, that there's, you know, traditions that mix semen and blood as part of really profound tantric sex rituals. And so even though sex is a very small part of the entire tantra tradition, the fact that they're willing and open to embrace sexuality or talk about sexuality in some of the tantric traditions, because it's also a vast system. It has lots of different uh, sex and practices and things like that. Uh, people cling to that one thing, like, oh my gosh, there is a religion that embraces sex. So I think that's part of it, or at least doesn't deny sexuality. Mm. And then another part is, is as Tantra came to the West in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, even though it was being taught uh, with energy, with breathwork, all these different things, people who were coming, they wanted access through sexuality. So much like yoga is about so much more than body postures and every most people think it's just about asana, it's just about the body postures. It's the same thing with tantra. It was kind of the sexuality that really stayed with people and so they tended to be most drawn to the sexual practices as well. Yeah, beautifully said. Um so you you talked a little bit about, you know, again in terms of your own issues and then sexuality as a whole and kind of the the reticence that people have to talking about these things. And so what I'd love to, to kind of bridge this into, especially focusing maybe on, on male sexuality, but um, why don't people talk about sexuality? Shame, uh, fear, and also like, if I'm going to be totally, totally honest, get real people who have their full blown, empowered, connected sexuality are super powerful, sovereign beings who are connected to their own wisdom and their own potent experience of life. And a big piece of, uh, you know, Western society for the last few thousand years has actually been stamping out people's connection to ecstasy, to full on primal wildness, to a level of sexuality that brings them to whatever you want to call it, a deep state of consciousness, the divine, an epic flow state, uh, a profound sense of gratitude. So we not only have our own fears of ourselves, which come up um, in sexuality, but we have this web of conditioning that goes back generations um, and into our own lives that says, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. That's really scary. Uh, there's something bad there. There's something dangerous there. So there's that web of conditioning. And then for men specifically, there's another web of conditioning, which says, you know, your sexuality can be dangerous. It can be harmful. It can be hurtful. And, you know, you could end up being, you know, a sexual predator. So really be careful of your sexuality. There's um, women have their own set of fears around this, but there's a specific conditioning for men that also, in my experience in working with them, really makes them afraid of their true sexual power rather than educating them to use their sexual power in service of their values, their highest goals, and honestly, the total joy and surrendered ecstasy of their lover when it's used in this really beautiful way. Sex is like anything. It can be uh, dangerous. It can be destructive. Sex is has one of the biggest shadow elements on the planet with rape, abuse, trauma, all of these things, or even just, you know, 
having sex with your wife in the same position every week with your eyes closed, fantasizing about someone else and never even offering her foreplay. Like that happens a lot. That all belongs to the shadow category, but then it's the most beautiful category, right? The, the deepest states of ecstasy, the, you can be so profoundly connected to another human being, creating your children, right? It also has access to the greatest beauty, but often, and even with men, we don't talk about the beauty of their sexuality. We don't talk about the gift of their sexuality, especially right now. We talk a lot about what to be terrified of the worst examples of male sexuality. It's amazing. We're having that conversation is way beyond time that we have that conversation, but if it becomes unbalanced, I also find that men tend to contract. And then there's this whole uh, kind of messaging system that keeps them very contracted and afraid of their full sexual power. Yeah, I love I love the idea of balance. And again, I think so much of the power of what you're talking about is is obviously uh, the necessity of that conversation of inappropriate sexual behavior and the impact that it's had on, on so many. But introducing the conversation of how do we expand the realm of sexuality for men so that they are more expressed, less repressed, not acting out, but more capable of expressing what they deem as you know positive, healthy sexual behaviors. And so, you know, one of the things that we work out of the Junto, we talked about this actually last time you were in New York, was the idea of kind of rigid gender roles of, you know, rigid expressions of, of masculinity. And as you were talking about, you know, how men are conditioned to perceive sex of what it is and what it can be. It, it, it reminded me of that conversation of like just a limited perception of what sex is and what it can be. And then you also talked about fear and shame. And, you know, oftentimes I think that one of the kind of uh, downfalls of men is, is that they show strength through certainty and mm -hmm. a real control and that to open oneself up to a, a new realm of sexuality of desire there there feels like there's a lot of not knowing you know of questioning and so how do you how do you open up that conversation for men for for someone who is open to understanding their sexuality on a deeper level um, how do you how do you open that conversation up without making someone you know, feel insecure without, you know, making someone, how do you make that conversation more approachable for guys? Yeah, totally. Well, I think you touch on a great and really important piece of why men hold themselves back, which is that they are also conditioned to be performers sexually. And, you know, in the kind of sexual revolution for women that's happened in the last 20, 30 years, there's been this message that to be an amazing male lover, you must give your partner, you know, X number of orgasms, like she must, or he must climax for you to be a successful lover. And so there's this messaging of performance. And I can't even I mean, we think of women as having to perform, right? You must have an orgasm or you must feel pleasure. But the pressure on guys to like get an erection at the right time, hold that erection for the exact amount of time, bring your lover to orgasm, but not too quickly to absolutely make sure that you don't come before them. Like it's this kind of rigid set of rules that feeds right into exactly what you're talking about. This kind of toxic masculine conditioning that the way to be a man is through control and precision and proper execution. So when that becomes the experience of sex, there's a rigidity to it. So a couple of ways that I feel like the conversation is really powerful for men is that, you know, really having actually their lovers express like 
I'm so grateful to you. I love what you're doing. I love, you know, our experiences in the bedroom. And I actually desire more of you. I want more than formula. I want more than just a perfect orgasm every time. I want, I want to actually experience not just the set and expected performance of sexuality, but I would love to experience your heart. I would love to experience the untamed side of you. I'd love to experience you without a prescription of sexuality. It can be hard for men to really understand that if your lover craves that from you, it's because he or she or they actually want you and your sexual essence much deeper. And there can be this fear. I see it all the time because I speak to a lot, a lot of women of saying anything to their male lovers because they're terrified of hurting him, of emasculating him, of making him feel like he's not enough. But these conversations have to start happening. Um, And for men to really realize that it is the greatest gift for your lover to say, I don't just want your performance sexuality. I want like your, like I want your heart and soul in sex. And maybe that means that your erection doesn't happen, uh, you know, right on cue. Maybe that means that you ejaculate when you didn't mean to. Maybe that means that you don't ejaculate at all and that's okay. And so having that invitation I find is really, really huge. And Sometimes sports metaphors help a lot, which is like, if you just do the same thing over and over again in sports, you can get really good at one particular thing, right? Like if you always just like practice one specific shot or one specific way of, you know, hitting the ball, but you're not going to be great at the game. Like you're going to be like a one trick pony. And most guys don't realize that if you masturbate the same way every single time with the same exact fantasy and you have sex kind of the same way every single time, it's this kind of one trick pony way of being, but you're never going to be a star athlete. Like you're never going to be the kind of, you know, athlete that people watch and they're like, oh my gosh, how do they do it? Because they're coming from a flow state that's so much deeper than just a practiced performance, right? Sure. They practice performance sometimes and sure that can be an element of it, but they do that so that they can get to this much greater state of expression. And to do that, means to allow themselves to be messy, right? If you're practicing over and over again to be great at sports, you don't expect yourself to be perfect every time. You try new things, you train in new ways, you get experimental, and then you can like enter the state of flow that's much deeper and more profound. So when guys get out of their heads and into their bodies, it feels scary at first, but you intuitively know that someone who's in their head when they're playing a game is not going to be nearly as powerful as someone who's really in their body, trusting their intuition moment to moment. And most guys have gotten to a place where they're actually really in their heads during sex. If you're fantasizing, you're in your head. If you're trying to get her to have an orgasm, you're in your head. If you're worried that you're going to lose your erection or you're not going to last long enough, you're in your head, right? And so being in a flow state is about getting out of your head into your body. That looks messy sometimes at first, but the actual product of it is it makes you a way better lover. It makes you way more connected to to incredible states of experience. And one thing that I would love for guys to understand that I don't think they fully understand is that You might think that you are choosing your sexual experience, but 
neurologically, and this is, you know, hardcore modern neuroscience, our brains actually operate by modeling reality over and over again. And our brains love to model the reality that they feel most comfortable with, that they feel most sure of. So if you masturbate watching the same porn, having the same fantasies over and over again, if you have sex in the same ways every single time, what happens is your brain is modeling this known reality of sex. And you're not actually the experiencer of sex. You're not creating sexual reality. You're actually just reliving a programmed sexual reality over and over again. It's like Westworld. Like you think you're creating your sexual reality, but all you're doing is being subjected to the story that your brain wants to tell over and over again. It's so limited, so conditioned, and most guys never get that in their sexuality. So to step out of that it's inherently terrifying. It's inherently terrifying if you're a robot that's been operating under the same model of control your entire life to truly experience something different. But that terror is an excellent sign that you're actually stepping out into a reality that's unknown, that's beyond the set story that your brain likes to create over and over again. And that's where the really powerful, really magical, really intense sexuality that I'm talking about starts to happen. Beautiful. And so like now, now that we're talking about getting onto that edge, what I'm most curious about, and this is, you know, even me just being curious from my own experience is that as you start to even grapple with the reality that there could be more, there's a deeper expression of myself that I'm ready to bring into my sexual experience. One of the difficulties that, that I've had and that I've, I've talked about with other guys is, is articulating what those desires and urges and wants are without really having the vernacular to explain it. It's so if we have a feeling, but we don't necessarily have the words of understanding that, that would be like the first part of how do we start to create language that basically helps us to understand what do I want? Like, what, what is it that I desire? And then the second is you talked about it before of, of asking and how, you know, sometimes a, a female partner asking a male partner or the other way around. Uh, articulating a desire can sometimes be emasculating for a guy. So I guess my next two questions, hopefully in the sequence, is the idea of how do we start to, to articulate those desires? And the second is, what is the best way that we can start to um, introduce and, and request what we want with our partners? Yeah. So one of the, the, to answer your first question, how, how do we have those conversations? I love introducing some regular way to talk about sex with your partner. And without that container, I think it's too easy to not say what's going on for you to not express things. So me and my partner, who is also called Andrew, I have my own Andrew <laughs> and he, um, me and him do a practice called, uh, desires, fears, and loves. We mm. try and do it at least once a week, uh, where we talk about, we get two minutes each. We don't interrupt each other. We don't coach each other. We don't change or fix each other. We just listen. What do you desire? Right. And what do you really want is a great way to think of that. Could be sexual, could just be in life, but we talk about it. We express it. Then two minutes each. What are you really afraid of? What is scaring you right now? What are you terrified of? And this is really important because even if we're just talking about sex, you know, you might say, I desire this, you know, expanded state of sexual reality that I don't even have a word for. And what am I afraid of? I'm afraid I'll let you down. I'm afraid you'll judge me. I'm afraid I'll feel weak. You know, it's so much easier to 
move towards these desires and experiences together if you're also aware of what your partner's afraid of. And just expressing your fears to each other in general, I find is so powerful in relationships. And then we do loves, which is what do you love about me, right? So I'll express what I love about Andrew for two minutes. He'll express what he loves about me. And that also holds that conversation with a lot of love and a lot of appreciation. Me and Andrew also do, uh, we call it a recap, um, after every single time we make love. Every single time, um, you know, we'll take turns, one of us will go first. And it's just basically, this This is what it felt like for me. This is what I loved. This is. This was the moment where I felt like, oh my God, I'm totally in my head. Or, you know, this was the moment where like I shut down and felt fear. And then the other person goes. And every single time, because we have that conversation, we're always talking about what we're experiencing, what we're learning, what's really happening. I find if you don't make a point of having those conversations, it's too easy to decide what your lover is feeling, to forget what you experienced or what was going on for you, and to not be really connected around your sexual experience. So that kind of very conscious way of making time to talk about sex, I find is so helpful. And then how to talk about your desires in a bigger way. One of the big reframes I like is we've kind of inherited that sex is about like sex is this um, formulaic proposition where if you do the right things, success equals usually we both came together. Like we both had an orgasm at the same time. And I would like to put that one experience of sex into a vast ocean of possibility and characterize them all as successful and redefine what success means. That success isn't we both performed in this very specific way and had this very specific experience, but success would look like we both tried something new. We both, you know, opened to intimacy in potentially a deeper way. We held each other with a lot of compassion and understanding. And we felt things that maybe we've never felt before. And maybe we felt more ecstasy, but maybe we felt more fear, right? That there's this much bigger realm of what success in sex looks like. And to change the narrative from we're both trying to perform together in this very specific way to we are supporting each other to experiencing our deepest sexual selves together as a couple. Like that's part of what our sexuality is. And that might look like sexual healing. That might look like, you know, my Andrew sometimes gets nauseous or, you know, he actually gets super angry as he's releasing sexual conditioning. He didn't even think he had, Mm. right? Sometimes that looks like us allowing ourselves to feel shut down or feel a no to sex. And then sometimes that's like, you know, mind-blowing, multi-ecstatic, cosmic orgasms as we look into each other's eyes. But all of those can fit into, wow, that was that was successful um, in our sexuality. And I find that that helps then to really talk about sex because my goal is for you to have the best possible sexual growth and experience over a lifetime, not just to have one specific experience in this particular sexual session. Uh, it's that's brilliant. I I love that. And like even with Mickey and I, kind of I I find that you know we're in arena of our life to get very personal of like introducing butt play for the first time ever. And yeah. I find that one of the challenges for me it's because it's an area where we're both inexperienced, and that there's an expectation there of what success has been. Of like like you said, like oftentimes we just associate it with with orgasm. And then to come back and like what you just said, almost like I felt 
almost like relief in my body of when we're exploring new things, even though it, it doesn't occur for me of like the sexiest thing, but pushing that edge and like that being success, like in that, in that, in the, whatever, you know, that experience was, is a beautiful way and a beautiful reframe for it, which, which I absolutely love. And, um, you talked about kind of some of the, the misconceptions earlier about sexuality and sometimes how people think about this incorrectly, if you will. What are, what are some of the things that people tend to believe that you wish they, they do an alternative truth? Or what are some of the most common misconceptions that you deal with, with people that you're, you're working with or just the general public as you're out speaking? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that people, uh, miss, like people really tend to think of only the dimension of sex that's based on visual, physical attraction and is the thing that's most potent and noticeable when you just met someone. So again, that's like one piece of what sex is and one piece of sexual desire, but there's a whole other world of sexuality that's based on intimacy that's based on energy that's based on like full abandoned surrender with one another it's like this much deeper kind of uh exploration and experience of sex and the reason i bring this up is because when people fixate too much on that early experience of desire and sexuality that's an amazing aspect of sexuality it's super potent it's super interesting it's super intense but you can kind of compare it to people who aren't food connoisseurs and the only thing that like like they're most attracted to like how intense is the flavor is it fried does it have a lot of sugar in it right they're looking for the most intense flavor experience instead of kind of the nuanced full experience like like how much food can be right there's so many different ways to enjoy food there's so many different ways to connect to food and so we have this like we overemphasize this one avenue to sexuality and because of that, I find people can spend long-term relationships like longing for that, or like the you know kind of original sexuality that you feel with someone, rather than realizing that the way that sexuality changes over time in a long-term relationship, sexuality actually becomes this container for you to heal all of your wounds around intimacy all of your fears around fully expressing yourself and all of your barriers to being truly sexually powerful and in a sexual flow state. So that means by nature, you're, if you're in a, so, a strong, solid, long-term relationship, your sexuality is going to bring up your fears, your blockages, your wounds for healing. So that brings me to the second myth, which is that if you're really in love with your partner, your sexuality should just be fucking amazing, right? Like it should just work. It should be easy. It should be passionate. It's actually somewhat the opposite, which is if you really love your partner, if you really have an amazing partnership, your sexuality will bring up difficult things to be integrated, to be healed, to be addressed. And only if you're willing to do that healing and integration together, does your sexuality then open into a much more powerful state. And so that brings me to the third myth, which is that, you know, sex always has to go downhill in a long-term relationship. So what I see is if a couple doesn't talk to each other, if they don't have those kinds of sexual conversations I'm talking about, if the sex is just based on kind of formulate performance, 
not only does it get boring, because how interesting can that be over a lifetime? But if you're not talking to each other, those wounds and intimacy issues that are meant to be healed in your relationship kind of freeze over and you get this barrier of numbness. So it's not that we inherently have to lose our sexual desire for each other in a long-term relationship. It's not that sex has to go downhill. It's that it will go uphill if we know how to work for it, if we know how to do the inter- the deeper personal and integration work. And so the opposite of that myth is that you can actually be having the best sex of your life. So I'm six years into my relationship with my Andrew. That's nothing to some people. That's a lot to other people. You know, let's check in when we're 20 or 30 years into this, but we are having the best sex that we've ever had. And we had an amazing, potent honeymoon period when we first met each other that was super hot, super sexy. And we've gone through our ups and downs. We've had periods of like, oh my God, we're only having sex once a month or like, oh my God, we're so resistant right now. Or, oh my God, I hate you. Um, But because we keep working and integrating and like approaching our sexuality, like it's there to teach us what happens is we keep integrating deeper and deeper wounds, fears, and intimacy, all kinds of stuff and finding greater and greater expression. So together right now, we're actually in this amazing also, but exploration phase that is so like, so powerful. And so I wish more couples knew that it is powerful to have better and better sex over a lifetime together, if you're actually using tools and practices, having the conversations and using your sexuality for what it is, which is a lifetime journey of expression and experience and growth, rather than something that you go in and try and get the same thing out of every time. I think I want to start with that. That that feels like the message that I want every single couple on the planet to hear. Like right there of just viewing that challenge as, as a, again, like an opportunity of, again, an opportunity for for growth of like being with someone who does bring that. Like we we truly grow in relation. It's such a powerful message and one that I just don't think people really get to experience. You're right. There's such an expectation. I love use the metaphor of downhill. And it's so true, right? It's just this ingrained expectation of what should be there. And it just it certainly hasn't been our experience but exactly what you talked about, it really has been that journey that has blossomed into one of the most important, beautiful experiences of my of my life. And um, you know, one thing I'm curious about, Layla, you know, now you've trained at thousands of co- hundreds, thousands of coaches. You're, you're you know reaching millions of people through YouTube. So, what is the role of coaches? What is the role of sex therapists? What is the role of programs to help people navigate these conversations? of opening up this exploration of sexuality. Totally. Well, because, you know, for me, the follow on question to what you just said for a lot of couples would be, yes, but how? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I want to do that, but how? Sure. And, you know, we don't have, you know, true sex education that shows us how to have incredible sexuality, how to support our partner through sexual healing, how to use breath work or um, mindfulness-based practices or the movement of our bodies, you know, even just basic physical training of our bodies to uh, experience amazing sexuality. We have this cultural myth like, oh, it's natural. It should just happen. 
But literally in no other domain do we feel that way. Like, yes, health is a natural state to be in. And everybody knows that it does not just happen. You have to work at it. You have to understand it. You have to be committed to it. Same with physical fitness. Same with your career. Same with your art, right? There's every domain in which human excellence is possible or self-expression is possible. You, You understand it and you work at it. And there's a particular set of tools and practices that support you in growing into it. Now, very, very few people have access to those tools and practices. And then even if you have access to those tools and practices, like even if you understand how to use breath work in your sexuality for amazing results, or even if you understand mindfulness, the vast majority of people have such heavy conditioning like we're talking about that they need that extra support to actually have those conversations, to actually be able to go in and deconstruct you know, social, religious, you know, life conditioning around their sexuality. So the role of a a sex coach or a really excellent sex therapist, you know, first and foremost is to hold a a non-judgmental space. Like people who come to me, it's still because I'm so immersed in shamelessness and non-judgment around sexuality. It's easy for me to forget how grateful they are to just be in a space where I don't judge them. If, you know, they, they, pee when they're on a trampoline, that's totally normal to me. I don't judge them if they can't get an erection. I feel like their penis is telling them something. I don't judge them if they have a fantasy that they feel bad about. Your fantasies are a domain where your deep mind is expressing something to you and everything is information, right? And so to hold that non-judgmental space, to actually give people tools and practices. And then I think one of the biggest things for me and in my specific coaching methodology in my courses is, you know, just like it's not enough to tell someone to go to the gym, they need support around their mindset, uh, their approach, their worthiness of feeling, you know, worthy enough to be fit, to be healthy, all these things. And then the support to, to really integrate it into their life. So it's very important that, uh, you know, a sex coach or therapist understands how to help someone deconstruct their, their walls and barriers around their sexuality and then supports them in their life and relationship to actually step into this, this new sexual empowerment. And I don't think a lot of the old ways of dealing with sex, both medically, psychologically have really truly worked for people. I think there's a whole new realm of sexuality and consciousness that hasn't been fully explored, but is so ripe for all of us to just like die in and and create a new world and a new conversation around sexuality and what's possible. Yeah. And you know, on top of that, I think one of the things that was really helpful as I started to, to seek help and to befriend people like you is the idea that when you invite in a third party to facilitate this type of exploration, it becomes so much less about like, just your desires or your sexuality, right? It's a shared experience of doing something inherently together with someone else, of like a third party that unifies both of you in that in that exploration. So it's not just one person trying to get what they want. And and on that note, like, what are your thoughts of when we work with men? We oftentimes talk about how like when we're deconstructing masculinity or, or practicing, you know, emotional mastery. That it's it's not about us just being who we want to be in the world. It's like how do we, how does this help us to be more of service to the people that we care about? And so, you know, I think it would be remiss if if as we move towards the the close of our hour, you know, how can how can men especially not necessarily just focused on the exploration of their own sexuality, but how can they play that role for their partners, whether that be a, in a long-term relationship for 
you know, a casual sexual partner, how can, how can men play a role where they provide that space for their partners and, you know, can, can allow for that deeper expression of, of whoever they're, they're with. Absolutely. So you can only go so far without the participation of your partner. Um, and so much, you know, I'll, I'll speak in, in heterosexual terms right now, but so much of female wounding has happened through um, around sexuality, being judged around sexuality, being unsafe in your sexual expression, um, being told that you better not be too wild and you better not be too frigid. Like there's all the, this messaging where women kind of get this message. You are not okay in your sexuality and your sexuality should be perfect. It should look like this porn star, or this Hollywood starlet. It should, it should, it should, it should. And should is like this toxic, heavy weight that crushes a woman's natural sexual expression. So one of the biggest gifts that a man can offer to a woman sexually is everything you feel is okay. Everything you Hmm. feel is okay. Feeling nothing is okay. Feeling not turned on is okay. Feeling numb is okay. Like feeling fear is okay. Feeling tears and, and sadness is okay. And feeling wild and sexual and lusty and passionate, it's all okay. So as a man does his emotional work to be able to um, you know, give himself the permission to feel all those emotions. So he gets better at being able to truly let a woman feel that all of her experiences and expressions are okay as well. And that safety is something we almost never talk about as a society other than physical safety, right? Yes, obviously you want physical safety and sexuality, but emotional, psychological, spiritual safety. Oh my God, people are hungering for that. Women are hungering for that. Men are hungering for that. So hold a space of you will be safe in your sexual experience, whatever you think, whatever you feel, whatever you're going through, I will commit to holding safety for you. And if I can't, then I commit to looking at that and myself and taking responsibility for that. But it's time for us men and women to offer each other, like not just physical safety, but emotional, psychological, spiritual safety in sex as well. Uh, I, I love that. And then if we're bringing this towards a close, and so let's say that, you know, if there's men who are listening or, or women that are interested in this for, for their partners, what would you say is available to them? If they commit, to this deeper exploration of their sexuality, what do you think is available to them? What is the transformation that they can experience? Like, what is the difference that they might notice in their lives when people do commit to this exploration? Experiencing ecstasy that's better than like taking like four MDMA, (laughs) hangover, Um, feeling your heart open and that you can look your partner in the eyes at the moments of your deepest uh, sexual bliss, sexual openness in all of your emotions. And that, that isn't, that puts an end to loneliness, right? Like loneliness is such a huge thing for so many people. When you really do these practices, you can be with another human. Yes, you're a romantic partner, but literally all humans in a way where you no longer feel alone and disconnected. 
when you really get to the heart of this work, you actually discover a kind of organic expression that people find very charismatic. They want to be around. Uh, It really actually helps in how you speak to others, how you are in your career, how you are in your life in general. And it kind of, the biggest thing I would say is like, if you've ever like watched Star Wars or Harry Potter and been like, my God, I wish I lived in a universe that was magical. You actually do. And doing these practices wakes people up to, oh my God, I live in a magical reality. Magical reality is just releasing the endogenous DMT of your brain in a natural way. And these sexual practices do that for people where you're actually able to move about the world, like feeling connected and as a part of nature, the universe, whatever you want to call it, it really, to me, it is the antidote to all that ails us in the modern world. Uh, Layla, you know, I think after hearing you say that, and then to kind of tell back to one thing you said before was like the, the reframing of success of success being like trying something new. And before we close this out, I just want to commend you because I think that again, if, of what you do and like what you've committed your life to, to the, the scientific understanding of what's happening in our bodies, of what sort of transformation is available to people when they dig in here, you know, you've given so many people permission to, to take that first step, to ask a question. And I think that making people feel comfortable in doing that, of opening themselves up to just ask a question of what do I want? How do I get my partner to do that? Who can help me to do that? And you've committed your life to it. And, and I, I really think that so, I mean, so many people already have been the beneficiary of it and so many will continue to be. So I just want to thank you for, for everything you've done. And I know I've certainly benefited from it already. And, um, you know, as we, as we close this out for people that are curious about your work, who want to continue this, what is the, what is the best way for people to connect with you, to find you online, check out some of your work? Totally. Uh, LaylaMartin.com. If you sign up with your email address, then I do a really amazing video every week. So if you've listened to this and been like, what are those tools? What are those practices? I actually make um, really incredible weekly videos that give you tools and practices you can start to use right away. Um, You can check out my YouTube channel, which is also Layla Martin. And when you're signed up on the email list, uh, we kind of periodically let you know we have a men's sexual mastery training um, around men's sexuality. We have two female courses, which are incredible. We have Epic Lovers, which is our couples course um, that trains you in all of these practices systematically as a couple. And then I have my sex love and relationship coaching certification, which is a year-long program. Um, that's just for women right now, but I'm looking to partner with amazing men like Andrew Horn in the future uh, to actually do a men's year-long certification as well. Well, we are, we're doing it. So, you know, one thing that I'll, I'll say on this is that uh, the thing that launched me into this exploration of, of Tantra and like how I could deepen my, my sexual practice with, with Mickey, with my wife, was a friend made a joke at Burning Man one year and he said, sex without Tantra is like scuba diving in a swimming pool. And I just, (laughs) as someone who grew up in, in water, I just, it felt so true. And I remember that like, as I just had that visual in my head that here I was in this just limited little space and I had the whole universe that was available to me. And the one thing that we did is, you know, we, we sought out uh, a coach and just someone to have a, f- a couple of conversations. We did like a four, four hours of work. And I always say that 
the four hour course that I took on uh, on Tantra was probably some of it was the least amount of work that I had ever done for the greatest amount of impact on my life and and how I existed and, and not just in the bedroom but connecting me with breath you know a certain level of depth with Mickey which then had this transitory effect on how I was relating to other people and so you know having having known Layla for a while and I really do believe she is she is the best voice out there her programs are incredible and so for anyone who's listening I think that um like inviting in some help is one of the easiest ways to take a step is that if you just have that feeling that there is space for deeper exploration, connection with your partner, with yourself, with your own desires and what sexuality can be in your life, that um, this is an incredible place to start. So I hope you check her out and we'll have all of her stuff in the show notes. But Layla, thank you for being so unapologetically you. You're amazing. And I am so excited to see where uh, you and your message continues to go in the world. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. 